Welcome to Under Construction. I'm your host, Marilyn Strickland, CEO of the Seattle Metro Chamber. In each episode, we take you behind the scenes with the people and companies shaping our evolving region. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud. And if you like what you hear, please rate us and subscribe. A special thank you to our sponsor, Advanced Professionals Insurance and Benefit Solutions. Today on Under Construction, our guest is Sam Cho, who is the newest member of the Port of Seattle Commission. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Well, Sam, could you please introduce yourself to our listeners? And then also, too, why don't you explain exactly what a Port of Seattle Commissioner does? Absolutely. So I am the Port Commissioner-elect for the Port of Seattle. I was just recently elected on November 5th. Okay. I'm a lifelong Washingtonian. Okay. Um, I grew up here in King County. Uh, I spent about six years in Washington, D.C., um, working on various levels of government. But I still have always considered myself a Washingtonian and Seattleite. Um, I worked in Congress as a legislative assistant. I worked as a political appointee under President Barack Obama. Um, and then when the Obama administration ended and winding down in uh, January 2017, I moved back to Seattle to found my uh, export company, Seven Seas Export. And, you know, back in May... Uh, I and saw, May of 2019. May of 2019, I saw an opening yep. uh, at the Port of Seattle. Uh, and so I jumped in. Um, and, you know, uh, we won. <laughs> you did. Uh, 22% margin, which was pretty significant, even yep. by my standards. Um, so it was, it's been a great ride. Um, the Port of uh, Seattle and the Port Commission is really a, basically a small legislative body right. of five. Yep. Um, and the commission basically has the authority to set rules and policies that govern the Port of Seattle. So the Port of Seattle uh, includes both the seaport, mm-hmm. right? What most people think about when they think of They think port. of shipping. And, exactly, yeah, exactly, maritime. Yep. Um, um, but actually what's unique about our port is that we actually include the airport. Right. Uh, so SeaTac Airport is also within the jurisdiction of the Port of Seattle. And so all the policies that are set for the SeaTac Airport is also through the Port of Seattle Commission. No, and I think it's interesting you say that because I think that some folks do not even know that yeah. the Seattle-Tacoma International Airport is under the jurisdiction of That's the right. Port of Seattle. Yeah. And we know that, you know, I, I was in New York last week and... Yeah. Touchdown at ten forty-five. I mean, it's it is a busy airport oh all throughout the day and yeah. evening. Yeah. So, um, talk about why partnerships are important to the work that you do at the Port of Seattle. I mean, I know you're newly elected, yeah. but talk about the importance of you know this this amazing international trade and all these right. things you have to do. Right. So, I think um, what makes the Port of Seattle unique is we're a special purpose government. Right. And we're kind of quasi public slash private yep. uh, enterprise, and so what I mean by that is that we were created. Uh, through statute. Yep. However, our mission is really to promote economic growth, uh, provide opportunities for communities, and really improve the quality of life of the people in King County. Yep. And the biggest way we do that is by partnering with our private sector tenants and partners to make sure that we're creating great jobs, um, that we are providing the infrastructure needs necessary for our city and our county to thrive as a region. Um, and I think a lot of people don't understand exactly how extensive and how much the port influences our daily lives. And so one of the things I hope to do as a commissioner is really be, for lack of a better term, an evangelist for the port. To, right. to really go out there and say, hey, this is why the port is important. And you should care about 
the port. If there's anything I learned through this election is that not a lot of people pay attention to the port race. I think it's one of those things where, you know, it's 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 a it's a big physical fixture in our yeah. lives, but you sometimes don't think much about it. And, right. you know, and one thing I will also say too, Sam, is that, you know, when you think about the port, you said our tenants. That's right. And so why don't you tell the audience what you mean about yeah. tenants? Because I don't think people even know that you have tenants. Yeah. So basically what I, how one would think, should think about the port is like, we're basically a big landlord for the region, right? Uh, we own a ton of land. Right. We own the seaport, literally the docks and the terminals there. And the airport. Mm -hmm. And so when I say tenant, I'm talking about um, the airlines that use our airport facilities to, you know, fly people in and out. I'm talking about the cruise ship terminals that where the cruise ship industry, we literally have contracts as, you know, just like you would if you were signing a lease on a building. On a retail, as a retailer. Right, exactly. We basically provide retail space for these businesses, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, We're publicly owned, obviously, but we provide the private sector with the resources and infrastructure they need to create jobs and do business here. And so that's what I mean by tenant. Uh, and the cargo terminals, the cruise terminals, the airlines, they, they're all considered our tenants. And even the small businesses who that's have right. spaces in exactly. the airport. Exactly, concessions. If yep. you go to any of the the, the food uh, court or the uh, concessions at the airport, those are all considered tenants as well, right? They pay us rent and they get an opportunity to run their business at the port. So I have a question for you, Sam. So Absolutely. we know that the um, Port of Seattle is a what I call a junior taxing district, and so yeah. it's funded with property tax. But mm-hmm. what is what is the revenue mix? So how much do you yeah. actually get off the property tax you collect versus what you get from the rent that your tenants pay? So the pay? tax levy is uh, around $74 million. Okay. That's per year. Per year. Okay. Right. And that is compared to an $800 million budget. So it's actually a very small it sliver is. of our budget right. and our revenue. And that tax levy is very restricted in what we can use for. And is that because by statute? It, uh, it's it, partially statute, but also just rules that we've set for ourselves to be you know, accountable. Mm-hmm. Um, the vast majority of the revenue and the money that comes to the port is not through taxes, actually. It's through fees. Yep. So uh, gate fees, landing fees, uh, the lease. So the revenue we, we receive from these companies that have leases at the port, mm-hmm. you know, the cruise ship companies pay us a lease for those terminals. The cargo ships pay lease. There's a landing fee for planes to land at the airport. Um, there's a fee per head okay. uh, for every passenger that goes on a plane. We charge airlines $4.50. And that gets passed along in the price of the ticket. That's right. Okay. So those those little surcharges at the end of yes. your ticket that you see, those, those some of those are because of the uh, port. Yeah. Well, you know, it, and that's a really interesting business model. So I wanted to daylight that mm-hmm. during our interview. So let's go back to the election. Yeah. Um, I know that the chamber endorsed you. We did a dual yes. endorsement and we were very pleased to do that. Talk about getting 60% of the vote as yeah. a first-time candidate yeah. in a county. So yeah. talk about, like, you know, why were you successful? So I think there was really two main reasons. Okay. One, the first and foremost, it was really the message and the, the basically... What was the message you used? Well, the message I used was a port for the people mm-hmm. or a people's port. Because I think the port has this reputation as being very corporate. Uh, very much, uh, you know, profit-driven, even though we're not allowed to make a profit. Right. Um, and so what I wanted to do is really uh, articulate the fact that the port should work for people. And that could mean a lot of different things for a lot of people. So it was yeah. open-ended enough where people can just kind of interpret it. Yeah. But in general, it was really about, you know, the people. And, I mean, the, um, and the number of people who work there, that's which right. is profound. Oh, my goodness. We have um, basically 151 thousand jobs across the port right of which eighty seven thousand is directly with the port of seattle and so we are the largest single largest economic publicly owned driver i think in in king county right 
um, but yeah, so yeah, um, the message that I want to pour that works for the people of Seattle and King County really resonated. The other half of it is really just outworking your opponents. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that if you were to ask anyone who kind of followed the very few people who actually followed the board race, <laughs> um, you know, what made Sam different as a candidate right. is that, uh, he was everywhere. You put in the work. Yeah, you put in the work. One of my former bosses was like, if you're going to do this, there's only really one key to winning, and that's outwork your opponent. Yeah. And I really took that to heart. you know. And if you ask my colleague, Fred Fellman, mm-hmm. he'd be like, this guy was everywhere. Yep. you know. And, and so I think uh, that re- resonated with people because uh, you know, it's one thing, because the Port of Seattle is such a low visibility race, you, yeah. can't, hit, you can't really uh, reach everyone. Right. But when you reach the same people over and over and over again, and they see that this guy's showing up, mm-hmm. uh, they start telling their friends, right. and their friends start telling their friends, and it becomes this compounding domino effect. You really can't underestimate that. And yeah. so I think that's what kind of put me over the edge. Well, you know, and I would also say, too, just the excitement within the Korean-American community. Oh, absolutely. So, you know, you're 29 years old, and <laughs> you are now the only person of color who serves on the Port of Seattle Commission. And I read a Santa Ng's report in the Northwest Asian yeah. Weekly after you won your race, and she said you're only the third Asian-American to win a countywide race in King mm-hmm. County. And, and hang on, everyone. The other two are Gary Locke, former ambassador, U.S. Commerce Secretary, governor, and King County exec, and Lloyd Hara, who's the first Asian-American port commissioner elected in 2005. So in some ways, you know, winning a <laughs> countywide race, yeah. if you're Asian-American, can, can can lead to big things. Yeah. Ask Governor Locke. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's unbelievable, right? It is. Like, that boggles my mind. I'm in the midst of such greatness. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I really owe a lot to leaders like Gary Locke and Lloyd Hara mm-hmm. and Martha Cho yeah. and, and you. Uh, I think, you know, I truly stand on the shoulders of so many of the giants that came before me. And I, and I sincerely do appreciate... Uh, them paving the way for guys like me. I think that that cannot be understated. Um, especially, you know, someone like Gary Locke, who really reached the upper echelons of politics yes. and public service. As a kid growing up in the 90s, being able to see a guy who looks like me right. makes you think, oh, I could do that someday too. And so that that was huge for me, I think. Even though, like, I didn't have intentions of running or being in politics as a kid, obviously. Right. Uh, just the fact that I saw someone in places of power and it just plants seeds in your head that, oh, like it's an open possibility, right? Absolutely. I mean, I, you know, representation is important. Absolutely. And for some time, sometimes you, you have to see people who you connect with, who you relate to, and you, yeah. and, and you imagine it's possible. I think I think about, so there's this really famous photo of Barack Obama uh-huh. and in the, in the Oval Office, and it's a picture of him bending down. To touch a little boy's That's, head. Yeah, so the yes. little boy is pat- basically petting the president that's right and and you can just and and apparently the 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 backstory is like the kid had asked the president to to touch his hair because he wanted to see if his hair was like his hair like if if, if the president's hair was like his hair right is president obama is your does your hair feel like mine exactly and you just know in that moment that he was thinking wow this guy's just like me yep right so it's 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 like that right it's a very iconic photo exactly exactly you're listening to under construction with marilyn strickland Special thank you to our sponsor, Advanced Professional Insurance and Benefit Solutions. Advanced Professionals provides insight and expertise to simplify wholesale healthcare benefits so small and medium-sized businesses can be stronger, healthier, and better positioned for the future. So Sam, tell us about the other work you do. I know that when you and I talked a few months ago, you told me about 
Seven Seas Export <laughs> LLC. And, that's you know, right. and, and that's it's your company. So yeah. tell us about Seven Seas. And it's a really fascinating story about the product yeah. that you offered and yeah. how you got there. So tell us yeah. about that journey. Yeah. So um, Seven Seas Export is a trading and export company I founded in uh, 2017, right after the Obama administration ended. So, you know, I had the honor of serving President Obama as a political appointee. Uh, when he left office, I left office, obviously. I wasn't reappointed to work for Trump. Right. Um, and so, you know, I was in a place where I was kind of trying to figure out what my next thing was going to be, whether mm-hmm. it's going to be continue uh, continue working in public service, right. whether it's not go do something else because I'm still in my 20s. At the time, there was a really bad bird flu outbreak in Asia, avian influenza, right? right? And it, it was kind of running rampant in Asia, but mm-hmm. it was particularly bad in South Korea. Mm-hmm. So much so that the government uh, basically issued a protocol that would uh, kill these flocks of chickens. Right. Millions of chickens were wiped out. But um, when you don't have chickens... You uh, don't you have got, eggs. That's right. You don't have <laughs> eggs. So that answers that age-old question. Um, <laughs> the, you know, the, the egg shortage was very... Uh, probably like a once in a lifetime you know opportunity and the price of eggs shot up from like three dollars a carton to like ten dollars a carton wow and so you know the the economist brain in me kind of went off the light bulb went off and i thought man maybe i can arbitrage the price of eggs right (laughs) um and and so basically i literally drove to my nearest costco Uh and i looked at how much a carton of 30 pound uh, 30 eggs was right and it was like three or four bucks Uh and i thought to myself man this that's a pretty big gap so uh, I called Wilcox Farms down in Roy, Washington. Right, right. J.T. Wilcox. J.T. Wilcox's farm. That's right. That's um, right. Although his cousin, Andy Wilcox, is the one who picked up the phone. Okay. And I was like trying to pitch him on exporting <laughs> eggs. And <laughs> they were like, who the heck is this kid <laughs> in D.C. Right. saying he can export eggs, right? Right. Uh, does he understand what that really entails? Exactly. And I did not. Right. right? So they were, they're a great family. I love them to death. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I've since moved on from working with them. Yeah. But they will always be... Uh, the people who got me started in this industry. And um, basically, I exported a pallet of eggs on a plane, and it was a complete disaster. A pallet of eggs in their shell. In their shell. Raw eggs in their shell. That's right. And I put them on a plane, I flew them over, and it was a disaster for all the obvious reasons, right? They're fragile, they have a short shelf life, you know? And so you had all this cracked eggs on a plane. (laughs) I basically ended up paying a ton of money to get rid of them. Right. Uh, and so, you know, I was thinking to myself, well, well no kidding, no one's doing this because it's like logistically impossible. Because it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, it doesn't really make any <laughs> logistical sense. So I didn't really, I didn't feel like the smartest guy in the room at that point. Right. But then what happened was, you know, I realized uh, after kind of bouncing ideas off people that my strategy and my approach uh, was wrong. Um, a lot of people were trying to do what I was going to do. Um, and so what I did is instead of trying to ship eggs and sell them to consumers like you and me right. uh, through grocery stores or yep. supermarkets, I decided to sell eggs to businesses, right. uh, the B2B model yep. as opposed to a B2C model. Yep. And the reason that makes a difference is because if you think about a bakery, a confectionery, a restaurant- Well, they buy them in bulk. They buy them in bulk, yep. but also like they're going to crack the eggs anyway right? Right. to make whatever end product. So my idea was to why don't we just crack them stateside <laughs> right, and then ship them in liquid form? Right. So I basically called the farms and they were like, hey, let's crack these eggs and let's package them in these 30-pound vacuum seam liners, freeze them, and ship them over by ocean freight. Yep. Uh, And this was a fairly new uh, idea. Like, the idea of cracking eggs and selling them was not new. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you go to Costco now- Well, if you go to the store now, they have products. Exactly. They have milk cartons. Yeah, they have milk cartons with egg uh, egg yolk or egg whites or whole eggs. A lot of people think that's fake stuff, Mm -hmm. but it's actually all real. It's just convenient. Yep. Um, and so what I basically did is 
turned that into wholesale mm-hmm. and I started exporting it. And it turned out to be a huge hit. Like all these bakeries, big yeah. chain bakeries were like, you're telling me I can just rip open this bag of egg and throw it in the batter? Yeah. And, 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 and there's something I want to share about yeah. Korea in Korean because Korean people love bakeries. Oh my gosh. I mean, bakeries love are just amazing. Yeah. And, it's, and it's everywhere when you go to, even when you go to Korean supermarket, oh, huge yeah. bakery Some presence. Some of the biggest bakery chains, yep. biggest consumers of baked goods in the, yep. in the world, I would say, yep. you know. Um, so yeah, so that's how it took off. And yep. I ended up, exporting you know around two and a half million pounds mm-hmm. of eggs um and uh you know i really created a name for myself as the egg guy <laughs> some some of my friends call me the egg king but i i kind of disown that title <laughs> no that's a great story yeah, yeah so let's talk about another venture that you're in yeah. so in september you started a role in public policy right. at a company called loftium which right. i've never heard of oh. and so why don't you tell us about loftium and tell yeah. us about the business model because it's pretty fascinating yeah so loftium is a startup uh, that is based right here in seattle okay. and we like to think of ourselves as being in the middle income and workforce housing space okay um and the reason i say that is because what we do is we basically help middle-income families afford single-family homes in large uh, cities like Seattle, Chicago, uh, you know, L.A., etc. And how we do that is really fascinating. It this is. model is so unique, and it's mainly, this is the reason why I joined Loftium. Okay. Um, we take single-family houses, uh, and we rent them out to families of middle-income at below-market rent. Okay. So, if, for instance, a house was $3,000 on the market. $3,000 a month, a month to rent. Yeah, sorry, excuse me. Yeah, $3,000 a month to rent on the normal market. Mm-hmm. We, on average, would probably rent it out to a middle-income family at $1,500. Huge discount. Right. And my question to you is like, and how can you afford to do that? Exactly. What's the business model? Because clearly there's a delta and we're, mi- we're, make- we're losing money. Right. So the houses that we target are houses that are usually multiple stories, okay. have a basement, a separate entry, and or maybe even ADU, an accessory mm-hmm. dwelling unit. Okay. And we turn that part of the house into a short-term rental. Okay. And most people will think of Airbnb right. when we think of short-term rentals. Okay. And so what that allows us to do is run a short-term rental in like the basement, which mm-hmm. is separate and, and confined to its own living space right. from the family. Uh, and the family gets to live in the main unit. Interesting. And that Airbnb revenue helps subsidize essentially the living cost and the rent of the family that lives in the main unit. Um, and so essentially you're taking a market mechanism, a very natural market mechanism mm-hmm. to subsidize housing. Right. This is very different from, uh, you know, affordable housing or any government program because government programs usually focus more on low income and right. affordable subsidized housing. Mm-hmm. And usually in policy, uh, any resources or money that can be allocated to housing, housing usually goes to affordable housing or low right, income housing. Right. So, we view ourselves as filling a, a gap. In which, the, in, which which in this market is very much needed. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, a lot of people refer it to as the uh, missing middle. Yep. Um, and so what we do is we basically provide a, a, a mechanism uh, and a business model that allows us to house uh, middle-income families. We're talking about school teachers, police officers, right. firefighters, carpenters, physical therapists. I mean, the list of professions that our renters mm-hmm. are in is astounding. Well, it's interesting. I mean, basically, it's a way for someone to afford a home and have an Airbnb situation, but not have to manage that process exactly. because it's a lot of work to be a landlord. We, exactly. We price it. We list it. We market it. Mm-hmm. Um, the tenants help us maintain the unit downstairs. Right. And the other really cool part is if these tenants become good hosts mm-hmm. and they get five-star ratings and whatnot, right. we will actually share the revenue with oh, them. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So there's a revenue share model as well, where if you get five-star ratings, 
Because what happens is if you get a five-star rating, more people book. Right. So it becomes this cycle, yeah. positive reinforcing cycle. Totally. And so to incentivize our tenants to be good hosts, we actually end up sharing the revenue with them as well. Uh, and the and and so you know for them it's side income plus discounted rent and it's like the best of all we have we have tenants who have broken leases with us because mm -hmm. they've saved money for down payments interesting for housing wow so they've basically said oh you know what over the last year we saved enough money for a down payment we're not going to renew our lease in which case we're like that's amazing well and also what's amazing about that is that you know you're able to provide homes that people can afford and you're also yeah. helping them get on the path of wealth building that's right and that's incredibly important absolutely. when we talk about income inequality absolutely I want to switch a bit, and I want yeah. to talk about um, Norm Mimnetta, who Norm. is one of your mentors. Absolutely. And some folks who are listening may not know who he is. Mm. So one of his quotes was, a good politician always has a big ear and a small mouth. Yeah. So tell <laughs> us about why that quote was important to you. And then tell, our, tell folks who Norm Mimnetta yeah. is. Yeah, so let me know. just introduce Norm Mimnetta is a, a two-time cabinet secretary, right? He was the Secretary of Commerce under President Clinton. Yep. And he was the Transportation Secretary yep. under President Bush. Yep. Uh, which is interesting because, and I, th I believe he's the first Asian American to ever be at the cabinet level. Okay. Uh, and he worked for both a Republican and a Democrat, which right. is also very unusual. Yeah. Although that does happen sometimes. Yeah. The folks I know who have served you know, See, that, presidents that's of both I parties. I think that's great. Well, I mean, um, that's the way it should work. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And 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 the 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 fascination and the fascinating thing about um, Norm is that he is the second generation Japanese American. Right. And as a kid, he was incarcerated during World War II mm. and thrown into one of the internment camps. He was a member of Congress before he was appointed to secretary. Um, and he has been such a great mentor to me. I mean, um, he founded an organization called APEX, yes. the Asian Pacific American Institute for Congressional Studies. Right. And he founded this because he realized when he was in Congress that uh, the Hispanic caucus, the black caucus, right. they were all getting an audience with the president, but the Asian Americans weren't. Oh, interesting. And so he said, we need to build power. Mm -hmm. We need to build a pipeline of yep. API leaders. And so he created Apex and then uh, KPAC, the Congressional Asian Pacific American Caucus. Mm -hmm. And um, my connection to... And, and you came up through that. That's right. You so came up through they that. have a program, the fellowship program, that basically yep. is a pipeline, pipeline building program. And I was an Apex fellow in 2014, right out of grad school. Okay. Uh, I got my start in politics through Apex. They placed me in Congressman Ami Berra's office mm -hmm. from California 7th. And I worked for him as a legislative assistant on you know a bunch of legislative issues my portfolio expanded from foreign affairs trade defense small business right. financial services it was a pretty wide ranging portfolio of issues uh and then that's you know nine months into working from congressman Barra, i received that call from the white house and so you know it's really it's really cool to see um norm's leg be, be a part of norm's legacy yep he was in seattle last week uh for his documentary mm -hmm. and um he reminded me that his father immigrated to the united states through the port of seattle Oh, interesting. Yeah. Wow. So it's like, it's literally full circle. Yeah, literally you know? full circle yeah, coming it's, back it's, home. It's, it's, it's amazing. But he's been a tremendous mentor for me. Uh, and, he, you know, you're right. That quote that you said, uh, having a big ear and a small mouth was pretty significant for me because as a candidate running for the first time office, mm -hmm. you know, I said that my message was huge in my campaign and me being able to win. Right. But that message came out of listening to hearing, people. Hearing what people That's said they right. wanted. It wasn't me spouting off policies that I think everyone will agree with. It right. was literally me kind of putting my ear to the ground and saying, what do you want to see out of a port commissioner? Right. And then using that to form my policies, to form my platform, to form my message. And so that was extremely helpful for me. Uh, and something obviously as an elected official yes. uh, going forward, I will have to keep uh, in mind as well to keep a you know big ear and a small mouth. And That's so, great. Yeah, he, he, he's great. He also has this great story about 
you know, when he was incarcerated as a child, mm-hmm. uh, he had to give up everything. He literally yep. left his oh, home. Fa- families left everything behind. Exactly. Yep. They, they they had like a suitcase. That's yep. it. And, and, and he told me, look, through that experience, I learned that there's only two things in life that you truly own. Mm-hmm. The first thing is your name. Yep. And the second thing is your integrity. Yep. You don't truly own anything else other than those two. And he says, those are the only two things you own. Make sure if you run for office, you protect the only two things you own. And that really hit me hard, too. Yes. And I was like, oh, my goodness. This, yeah. This is such so much wisdom right now. So much wisdom. Yeah, I love it. So let's talk a bit about your background, Sam. So you're yeah. a second-generation Korean-American. And talk about the experience your parents had immigrating to the United States. Yeah. And, and also, too, just talk about your South Korean heritage. So yeah, you said absolutely. you're pretty much a native of the region here. Yes. So, t- so tell us about your family. Yeah, so my parents were immigrants uh, from South Korea. They what, came where, here. What part of Korea? So my mom is from Seoul. Okay. Um, and my, my dad is from Busan. So it's really funny, Sam. My mother, who is from Seoul, and I was born in Seoul, uh-huh. she often says that she doesn't meet very many people from Seoul, from from Busan, from mm-hmm. a lot of other places, but very few people from Seoul that she meets. Yeah, yeah. I think, uh, yeah, it's interesting how uh, I think people in Seoul were more uh, ingrained in like that culture and society. Right. And I think folks from outside of Seoul are yep. more open to moving and kind of being a little more flexible. And so yeah, more probably, mobile. Exactly, exactly. So when did they come here? They came here in the late 80s. Okay. Uh, my dad studied at uh, the University of Washington. Okay. Um, he ended up dropping out because of me, basically. Yeah. Uh, he's He and my mom ran a small dry cleaners okay. when I was a kid. So they okay. were, uh, you know, I always say that um, my parents used to scrub colors for a living and now I wear them for a living. <laughs> uh, and so it, it's, it, again, full circle, right? Yep. Um, yep. And so, you know, they were dry cleaners. My dad ultimately actually ended up in construction. He was a contractor and a subcontractor for Costco. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so he wasn't in the construction world for a little bit, and that put me and my brother through school. Where did you go to school? Uh, so I went to American University out okay. in Washington, D.C. Okay. Uh, I wanted to study foreign affairs, so I was yeah. an international relations major. And then I did my grad degree in London. I went to the London School of Economics, uh, studied political economy there before I came cool. back and worked in Congress. Excellent. Yeah. So talk about what it's like to be in a place like Seattle. There are a lot of people from different backgrounds. We have yeah. one of the highest you know, population of immigrants. So talk yeah. about your South Korean heritage and how that's important to you and how that informs you. Yeah. So, I mean, my heritage definitely shapes a lot of who I am and uh, my perspective, mm-hmm. my experiences, obviously. Um, you know, growing up, my parents weren't the best English speakers. So I always felt like a liaison between my parents well, and the I, rest of I used to say that I'm the interpreter for yeah, the Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I think at the end of the day, it, it built a lot of character for me, yep. kind of being that liaison or ambassador, so to speak, or interpreter, yep. as you like to say it. Um, and so, you know, uh, that was kind of my childhood. I grew up going to Korean school on Saturdays. Oh, you did? Yeah. So I speak Korean fluently. I missed out on a lot of Saturday morning cartoons growing up. But you know what, though, I tell I say this to young people all the time. I say, you know, people. I often speak in front of high school mm-hmm. students, mm-hmm. and they say, you know, if you could give us some advice, what could it be? I said, learn to speak another language oh, yeah. aside from English Absolutely. fluently, Absolutely. because that opens so many doors. And I think one thing that I've uh, come to appreciate recently is like, you know, don't make fun of someone who speaks with an accent because that means they speak another language. That's right. That's and right. so. Um, for me, I really, really am grateful for the fact that my parents have kind of instilled uh, my heritage in me. That's and right. it's still part of who I am. And, uh, you know, I go back to Korea every once in a while as well. So it's been really great to be uh, deeply rooted in this community here, the Korean American community. Well, speaking of which, yeah. you are currently president of the board of directors of Washington State's Korean American Coalition. Yeah. You're also a member of the Council of Korean Americans. I think that's based out of D.C., right? That's right, yep. yeah. And then commissioner and chair of economic development for the state of Washington Commission on Asian Pacific yeah. American Affairs. So <laughs> why is it 
so important to you as a leader to yeah. be involved in those types of organizations? Um, I think first it's really important to be deeply rooted in your community, to understand where you come from, to kind of uh, make that your base. Mm-hmm. And I think for me, uh, understanding that my start in politics has been through these organizations that really wanted to create a pipeline yeah. of leaders for the AAPI community. Mm-hmm. And so I really find it, uh, I think it's incumbent on me to really continue to be active. But also I think, um, you know, making sure that we have representation. And we talk about this all the time. Yes. Representation matters, right? Um, the old cliche that you know, if you don't have a seat at the table, you're probably on the menu. right? Uh, and especially the AAPI community, uh, which actually has a long history of oppression and discrimination and whatnot that a lot of people don't learn in school. Well, and sometimes I think there's this idea of model Asian. So there are oh, kind of yeah. a couple of different stereotypes That's right. that kind of happen when we talk about That's the right. AAPI and community. it's to the detriment of many minorities in our community yeah. who get left behind as a result of that, uh, you know, stereotyping. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so making sure that I'm in the community and make sure that we are advocating on our behalf, but yep. also just like, uh, you know, building leaders, you yep. know, making sure we're creating the pathway for the next generation. In the same way Gary Locke, Martha Cho, mm-hmm. and leaders like you yeah. created the pathway for me, I feel yeah. like it's my turn to then create a pathway for the next That's right. kid who, who, who comes along. You know, um, Norm uh, did this through Apex, yep. but you know, oftentimes he'll say, uh, if you're fortunate enough to make it to the top in whatever profession sure. you're in, it's your job to press the elevator button and send that elevator back down. That's right. And that's what Norm did, uh, mm-hmm. and he continues to do today, even yep. though he's been in retirement for a long time. And, and I definitely will, you know, take that mantle and continue that one. I often think about, you know, when we talk about the idea of helping members of our communities who have been underrepresented historically. Yeah. And I tell folks, you're always honored to be the first, but you never want to be the last. Exactly. And that's, you know, oh, that's, that's, why, so good. That, that's why you build the pipeline. That's right. That's right. So I want to switch a bit to what I call my lightning round. Let's All get right. to know Sam better. Oh, boy. So what would someone be surprised to learn about you? Oh, man. Um... You know, it's funny because when you run for office, you feel like everyone knows everything about you. Well, it, it, it definitely do. is the most revealing <laughs> experience you'll ever yeah, have. Yeah, no kidding. Um, so I, I'm, I'm a violinist. Okay, you are. Yeah. See, that's something that I've been played uh, like seriously in a while. But I played for over twelve years. I was in symphonies. Oh my gosh. Uh, yeah, I was a pretty serious violinist. In fact, at one point, I thought about just going into music full time. Uh, but then, you know, there's always someone better than you, and so <laughs> I figured, and you kind of make a living. Uh, and then I think maybe some, I don't know, I'm a black belt and I used to compete really competitively in, in, college, in Taekwondo. Taekwondo, okay. Yeah, so I, uh, former Washington State Open champion, um, yeah. So, so you're a Taekwondo champion, but you're also a violinist. Yeah, right? That, the that, yin and the, the yang. There you go. There that you is, go. There you go. <laughs> so what is your favorite day trip out of Seattle? Oh, man. Well, I think for me, uh, we are blessed with such beautiful and majestic environments. Yeah. Uh, I really like going out to Snoqualmie Falls mm-hmm. and seeing the waterfall. Yep. I think it's really unique for our region. Yeah. Uh, and then I'd go on hikes every once in a while yep. and really enjoy uh, nature. Yeah. You know, honestly, I haven't done it recently because I've been so busy and I'm a little guilty of, you know, not doing it. But uh, it's something that I missed a lot when I was in D.C. because it's uh, such a big city with a lot of, you know, hustling and bustling. Yep. Well, and we live in that. one of the most beautiful places in the oh, world. Yeah. And so to, to take advantage of it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I love I love scenic hikes and uh, waterfalls. Very cool. <laughs> you know, in all of our spare time, Sam, we like to sometimes binge watch television <laughs> shows. So is there anything that you're binge watching? And yes, it can be a K-drama as well. <laughs> Uh, 
you know, every once in a while, there are uh, Korean dramas that uh, come up. You know, Netflix has had some really good Korean oh, dramas. Oh, so my recently. mom and I just finished watching My Country. Oh, that! Oh my God. I'm so glad you just mentioned that. Oh, my God. That. Isn't was, that like the best? I was kind of debating whether or not I should mention <laughs> oh, that. Oh, no. I, I have to bust okay. out with some My Country. And then last year, I was into Mr. Sunshine. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, Mr. Sunshine ne- was good, too. I, this is not an ad for Netflix, but they are running some really oh, profound yeah. and amazing K-dramas. And, and, and historical, too. <laughs> yes. Historical. Like, it takes you back into like 1500 Korea BC. Right. Which is really cool just yeah. to be able to see. Oh, like, you know, a lot of people are getting to see what uh, Korea two, three hundred years ago looked right. like, which is really cool to me. Yep. Um, but, you know, I don't, lately I haven't had a lot of time to watch yeah. TV shows. You're right, I do binge watching them. Yep. Uh, although recently I did watch The Irishman. Have I, you seen that? I started watching it, but I've, I've, I, I, I keep walking away because it's a three-hour movie. Three-hour movie. Yeah, three-hour movie. But I've heard good reviews. It, it's it's good, and I think uh, the acting is good. The story plot is fascinating. Yeah. So one question I love to ask all of my guests is, you know, you're going up to bat, game's on the line. Oh, man. What walk-up song are you going to have before you go to bat to really psych out the pitcher <sighs> and just win it for everybody? Th- that's so funny. Um, this is a tough one, but I think uh, Remember the Name by Fort Minor is uh probably my walkout song okay um i feel like i've always had a chip on my shoulder <laughs> uh I, I feel like the under i like being the underdog right? when i ran for office i was the underdog i yeah. was the kid who came out of nowhere and had yeah. no name recognition uh and the, the song just gets you pumped up yeah. you know and so like it's, it's it's kind of my go-to pump up music um that and if you know like some Eminem, but I think uh, my go-to is definitely Remember the Name by Fort Minor. All right. <laughs> well, Sam Cho, a name that we are going to remember in this region, congratulations on your election. You. We look forward to working with you, and thanks for being on Under Construction today. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to Under Construction with Marilyn Strickland. Thanks for listening, and we hope you return. Special thank you to our producers, Alicia Teal and Maggie Wilson of the Seattle Metro Chamber and our engineers at Cloud Studios here in Seattle. And thank you to our sponsor, Advanced Professionals Insurance and Benefit Solutions. To learn more about the podcast, visit seattlechamber.com slash underconstruction. And stay in touch. Follow the Seattle Metropolitan Chamber of Commerce on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter at Seattle Chamber. <laughs>